Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dr. Azizat Johnson is a social geographer at Queen Mary University of London. Her research has focused on themes of black feminism through the experiences of black Muslim women who are too often forgotten within discussions about anti-blackness, feminism, and Islamophobia. Azizat's a co-editor of The Fire Now, which sets out to challenge the myth of a post-racial era against the backdrop of Brexit and Trump. In her work, Azizat's also unpacking how whiteness is neutralised within spaces of power and how that impacts on everyday lived experiences, particularly for black Muslim women. Her current research focuses on decentering whiteness by asking how black women create spaces of home whilst navigating the nostalgia for empire that's been exposed through Brexit. I invited her to answer some hard-hitting questions about how to resist and exist within white power structures. I'm Sarah and this is Small Talk with Dr. Azizat Johnson. Azizat, what is whiteness as a structure? I think I need to preface this with this recent like election, right, that we've had. And I think a lot of people processing the kind of like what it meant that people voted for a party that has overseen so much. What's the word I can use other than destruction, destruction and tragedy, right? And on the other side, we had like a party with flaws, absolutely with flaws, but that still had a vision when it came to like things like the NHS, when it came to social welfare as a broader kind of concept. And so when I think about like whiteness as a power structure, it's about like the the willingness to protect whiteness to protect whiteness as like privilege by any means necessary, even if it includes your own demise, which I think we can see in this country right now quite intensely. But I think it's really important for us to talk about whiteness and the way in which like it is continuously protected and what it means that we're living in societies that have done so much to protect whiteness as a neutral state of being, um, as opposed to something that is embedded within power relations. Can you expand on what some may mean by saying that we're living in a post-racial era and how are you unpacking it? I mean, I think it's just this kind of imagination that empire is actually something which involved trade, which is quite literally what a student told me once, (laughs) as opposed to thinking of it as like fundamentally violent and horrific endeavor that continues in different ways today. So one of the ways in which I'm I'm currently thinking about unpacking that is really unpacking the violence of colonialism and the fact that the vast majority, the vast majority of black and brown people who were always a part of the British Empire, who were always defined as part of Britain, are outside of Britain's walls, right? Um, and yet this is never conceived of when we're talking about um, migration and when we're talking about stemming, the, like closing the borders in different ways. So if you're already setting up a conversation where the vast majority of the people who have been subjugated by British rule are outside of this country and you have no way of actually including them in the narrative, then what are you actually, like, 
my guy, what is the point of what you're doing in this moment, you know? How do we actually reverse that as much as possible? So think of our own lives, the few of us who are here, as fundamentally connected to the black and brown people that are outside of this country. And by the few of us, I don't even mean just black and brown people, everyone who is in this country, right? Because there is no way that you can talk about the common wealth, the the common <laughs> wealth they told us without talking about the subjugation of black and brown people outside of this country. Azizat, off the back of that answer, could you explain what structural violence is? Someone has a particular experience which is racist, right? Someone yells something um, or attacks you in some sort of verbal, physical way. Um, but actually, we need to think about like these institutions as fundamentally violent. And so I think that's what I'm talking about when I think about like structural violence. So the Home Office, the deportation of like Windrush elders, that's a form of structural violence, you know? Um, and we need to be able to talk about these institutions that are perpetuating policies that are fundamentally violent if we actually want to get somewhere when we're talking about these like everyday small small acts of violence and not small in the sense that like they are traumatizing yes but like if we can't talk about the structures if we can't talk about you know the home office or prevent or any of these institutions then how will we actually get at the different ways in which Islamophobia and anti-blackness is actually perpetuated in our society today. Because it's not the everyday person on the street that I'm, I mean, I'm worried about them, absolutely worried about them. You can't look at the kind of, you know, continuous um, abuse of vi like visibly Muslim women without being concerned about like everyday people on the street. But I'm a lot more concerned with middle and upper class people who are existing within journalist circles, right, which are predominantly white, existing within parliament, existing within policy advisory groups um, that exclude our voices so systematically and then have have an ongoing impact on questions around housing, questions around employment, you know, who can access what on a wider structural scale. How do these structures manifest in policies such as Prevent? So my friend and I are actually like, um, so Shireen, like we're going to be writing a chapter actually on the different ways in which Prevent, not only Prevent, but the different ways in which like impact today has such a ongoing kind of it's constantly used impact is constantly used within academic spaces as like the next thing that you should be doing right how is your research having impact in different ways and so uh, Shireen is talking a lot about the what it means for her to be doing scholarship on preventing schools and to also be within a university institution that that legally has to report any students as part of prevent. So what does it mean when you're trying to trouble these policies whilst located within institutions that actually perpetuate them? And I think this is going to be a bigger question for those of us who are working in public institutions or semi-public institutions as we move forward. How do we push against the very structures that we live in? Azizat says that we cannot possibly understand or even work against whiteness as a structure or otherwise without also thinking about anti-blackness. They are inextricably linked. These structures often thrive in creating inequality because of horrific injustices rooted in anti-blackness. Azizat's scholarship is first and foremost for black Muslim women. Her work has looked at how violent structures are embodied by visible Muslim women on a day-to-day -day, and what that also means for someone like her, a black Muslim woman and academic, working within these structures herself the bodies that are inhabiting government, the bodies that are inhabiting um, academic spaces, journalism, all of these different spaces of power 
are predominantly white, what does that tell us, given wider histories that I've kind of been talking about in relation to like black and brown people as part of the British Empire more generally? So I think when we're talking about embodiment then, it's important for us to think about, well, how are different racialized, gendered, and religious structures embodied by black Muslim women? How do you walk around as a visibly Muslim woman within a climate of Islamophobia, you know? What does it mean then for you to recognize the wider structures um, that exist in the world and for you to try to move around them in different ways, for you to have to negotiate them through your everyday lived existence? That's my interest when I'm talking about the embodiment of blackness and Muslimness and gender for black Muslim women, because it's more about, well, how do you actually live it? You know, like these are all structures that exist. And so how are you how are you doing? How are you surviving? How are you taking care of yourself in big and small ways? Uh, For me, I think it's more about, well, okay, if I know, if I'm trying to connect to the community that I actually feel a part of, what does it mean to develop my scholarship for them primarily? And then everyone else comes after. And I think that's like a constant problem, I guess, that you're navigating, a constant difficulty that we're, yeah, rubbing up against in different ways. But I guess for me, it's just really important that like, okay, as I'm thinking through questions of, you know, what does it mean for black Muslim women to be comfortable in a society that positions them continuously as a source of discomfort, right? Um, Then it becomes like, well, how do we actually understand black Muslim women's experiences? And how does it actually provide a space for them to be nurtured, for them to be nourished, particularly in this moment, given how horrible yeah the everything the looks yeah yeah do you think that the muslim community has a tendency to emulate white power structures i mean the, the only way in which i would say muslim communities i'm not even sure whether i would say emulate white power structures because like the way in which muslims have been so thoroughly demonized in every way like it's not really possible you know what i mean but what i would say is that i'm not fully i'm not convinced let me put it like that that there are enough muslims out there actually doing something to tackle anti-blackness on a daily basis, Um, whether it's in their family, in their mosques, in everyday conversations, in their activism. Um, I think that there's this kind of very dangerous language, to be honest, where Muslim is treated as another form of like ethnic like racialization, as opposed to viewing it like Islamophobia is existing in different forms for different racialized groups. Um, So the way in which Islamophobia would be experienced by someone who is white is going to be different from the way in which Islamophobia is experienced by someone who is black or someone who is like brown, whatever, right? It shifts. And I'm not fully sure that those kind of Difficult conversations are actually happening right now. I don't think that we're talking enough about anti-blackness within the Muslim community. And not only talking, but like really transforming our politics because of it. And I think it's always really weird for me because I I go to these events and I'll say something about anti-blackness and inevitably like non-black Muslims will be like, yes, absolutely, I agree. But then the scholarship stays the same. The activism stays the same. And so I'm like, well, what actually is being transformed in this moment? You said that there's not a tendency as such. Are there some parallels that can be drawn? I would say Muslims tend to do a similar thing that white people do. Um, So Muslims, whether you're brown or white in this situation, in terms of like avoiding talking about something that makes you deeply uncomfortable, right? So like, instead of actually confronting anti-blackness in all of the different ways in which it is perpetuated in your family, um, in your everyday spaces, there will be like, a, oh, but we are all one ummah. 
remember that, you know, there have always been black Muslims. You're always apart. Oh, my God. Da, 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 da. And that I find tiring, to be honest. And I think it's really reached a stage now where I, I, I just don't really believe, unless you are actively doing work against anti-blackness, like... I don't think that I'm necessarily in a place where I can like trust people um, just by virtue of what they say, because things are that bad now that if you're not thinking about anti logics of anti-blackness and Islamophobia in conversation with one another, you're just not even getting to the root of the issue. If you can think about the way in which Muslims are being policed today and not connected to the wider policing of like black bodies historically, um, you're not even really able to address the problems that exist today. And I don't think that's only, I know I mentioned scholarship, but I don't think it's only in scholarship. I think it's mainly in scholarship and activism. I've seen this across different groups where I'm just like, I don't think. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're getting at the differences within our community and if you can't understand the differences within us, how can you possibly care for me, you know? Because sometimes I think people will argue, oh, well, I'm taking care of myself because I don't know how to, like, um, deal with these things. So, And they're so, like, they cause a lot of anxiety. And so how do we think about that and the way in which that is enacted within the Muslim community as well? Oh, but Islam I'm looking at Islamophobia. How can I possibly deal with anti-blackness? And I'm like, there is no conversation about Islamophobia in today's society without thinking about wider structures of anti-blackness and how Islamophobia has built from those. You can't really care for your, like you need to care for yourself, but caring for yourself is more connected to caring for different bodies in this moment, right? Um, so if you're caring for yourself by ignoring everyone else, you're not actually caring for yourself. What mm -hmm. you're doing is perpetuating structures of power. How do you resist and exist within these structures? I've been reading this book by Francesca Subandi and Akugwe Majulu called um, To Exist is to Resist, Black Feminism in Europe. And like, I love it. I love the book. It's fantastic. Go out and get it. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as I was reading the book is this kind of question around, well, what does it mean for us to think about existence as resistance? And not in the kind of like widespread mainstream feminism. Oh my God, everything is existence. Everything is resistance. In a world that is so fundamentally anti-Black, in in a world that perpetuates Islamophobia to a state where it's just the norm now, um, what does it mean for you to actually claim your right to exist and to feel the emotions that you are feeling in this moment in their entirety, immediately thinking about what you're doing for other people, you know? 
And I think that's the kind of switch that I would like to see in more people and in myself, in all of us in the future, is how do we actually like honor our own existence and give ourselves the space to be human in the fullest extent of the word. So to be angry at what we are seeing, to be sad, you know? And it's really hard for us to experience anger on a public forum because you will immediately be racialized and problematized for it. And so then demanding space to be angry, demanding space to be sad, but also to feel joy, to feel all the full range of human emotions um, is a really important part of us actually like resisting this moment as well. What does resisting look like for individuals whose work is not about directly challenging these structures? Are there subtle ways to resist? With my sister, in all of her jobs, um, so none of her jobs have been explicitly related to like um, anti-racist scholarship or anything, but she's always been very conscious of what it means then to like be developing policies with with HR on how to like improve things for the next generation that come in. And because of that has been, has dealt with a lot of um, difficulties, a lot of pushback from the institutions that she exists in because corporations will obviously always look out for the bottom dollar as opposed to for any kind of like social welfare. but I think it's important to recognize that like all of these kind of resistances exist in everyday interactions. They exist in what you choose to prioritize at your workplace. So if you are working in an environment where you are dealing with racist um, aspects of wider society anyway, how are you then trying to make a difference for the people that come after you? In different ways. So for example, I've been thinking a lot about, well, what does it mean for me to work with institutions that can then like open the door to the next generation of people who look like me or people who are even further disadvantaged than me to actually come in and do these roles, you know? Despite the urgency to address the issues at hand, Azizat's looking at what it means to resist and exist in a way that is sustainable. As a black Muslim woman living with a disability, Azizat's own lived experiences of being marginalised in certain spaces and structures are deeply connected to the scholarship she's providing for others. And so Azizat has said that she's had to take a step back in her personal life and fully navigate, and fully navigate how these structures impact her and how she has to look after herself. We absolutely need to be putting our hearts into it, but we can only do that properly if we actually honor ourselves first. And you see, yeah, I've been reading work by black feminists for time who talk about this and generally been like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. self-care, super important. And I think it's only been this summer where I was really like, oh right, that's what y'all meant. Like we need to slow down and be realistic about what we can do in any moment. To be honest, it's been a lot of things at the same time. Uh, One, it's been like absolutely gotta give a shout out to my therapist. I think she did a really good job at making me like kind of stop and think about the fact that you become so used to taking up less space, especially with a disability, right? Like um, it becomes easier to just, ah, the wheelchair, the lift isn't working, let me find stairs, I'm gonna have to navigate this. I only just started using a walking stick this summer. um, And before I would just be in so much pain on a daily, you know? And so what does that then mean for you to try to take care of yourself? in a different way. Actually think about, yes, yes, your mind is working through all of these things, but your body is here and now. 
how do you actually like take care of it and see that as a fundamental part of like your scholarship as well. Zizat, could you share with us what brought you into your field of work? I just knew after doing, well, during my, like when I was doing my master's, um, or actually from earlier on, I've just always been interested in kind of questions around what does it mean for us to exist in this moment? Um, Even if I didn't necessarily verbalize it as such, because like, you can't verbalize it as such when you're younger. Um, But I think, okay, definitely growing up in Denmark informed a lot of the ways in which I think, just because it gave me a sweet um, look into the way in which white supremacy and liberal feminism are like working together very, very beautifully in that country. Never going back. (laughs) Don't go. (laughs) Like Just a bit of... Anti-tourism advice uh, relating to Denmark. It's always interesting to me the number of like Muslims who will, when they hear I grew up in Denmark, will be like, yo, you grew up in Denmark. That must have been hard. While white people tend to overall be like, oh, super lovely. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, like I'm grateful for, you know, the family friends that we have, like for... Yeah, the fact that I could go to an English-speaking school for free because of the type of welfare society that they have, absolutely. But, hey, like, the racism in that country is so... It's not even on the map as something that needs to be discussed, right? And also, like, I don't think I even really had the language to describe it until I came to this country. How have you navigated scholarly and personal challenges to your life and work? I have good people in my life, to be honest. Like, I have people who are, like, quite good at calling me in and being like, well, have you eaten? Are you going to be safe in this thing that you have agreed to? You know what I mean? Like, actually thinking critically about, well, how do I take care of myself? Um... And how do I establish boundaries with the people that I care about and allow them to help me and care for me in different ways? And so even in my workplace, I think recently I've been thinking a lot about what it means for whiteness to structure academic institutions. And so how do you create boundaries that allow you to like have, a, have your space to think and to do the work that you think is necessary? One of the ways in which I guess I do it is now I am trying to trying out this like open office days on Mondays and Thursdays where I like yeah take meetings with different people both students like activist groups and just everyday people who might want to have a conversation and get to talk to them a bit more about okay well what projects are you interested in working on and how might I be able to like yeah work with you in different ways and I think it helps me to remember like why I want to do the work um, and helps me to feel like yeah, energized by the types of conversations that people come in with, you know, because it's with, yeah, it's it's been a real range of different conversations. So I think that's one of the ways in which, like, on a very, like, real basis, this is how I'm trying to restructure my work environment so that it actually, like, works for me and I don't end up feeling just, like, consumed by structures of whiteness, you know? I don't know, recently I've had to like think about, well, what type of academic do I want to become, you know? And there are loads of academics who have inspired me in different ways, but it's definitely one who is, I want to become an academic who is undoing the boundaries through which academia exists in different ways, right? Um, And so one of it has to be through being available to the wider community that you serve, um, whilst also setting boundaries so that it's not like I'm working all of the time but there is still like a space for you to actually difficult and different conversations. Lastly, how has your work shaped your spiritual journey? To be honest, I've been having quite a 
difficult time with my spirituality for quite a while. Um, again, connected to all of the difficulties that comes along with living with chronic illness and chronic pain in this moment um, and trying to like understand that, right? But I think, I don't know, recently, yeah, recently I went back home and like, um, so my parents are both like really devout, but I mean that in like the nicest way I possibly can. And I think it's been, it's so interesting when you see how hopeful that type of spirituality is, you know what I mean? Like that you're so connected to something that is greater than you, to something that is beyond this world and how that informs the type of like the type of action you're really willing to do in this moment and for me I guess like not only me but I mean I think about Sahema at her book launch um, when she was talking about how like well to be honest and I know it sounds really cheesy and like she was cheesy but that's okay she's a child <laughs> but she was like you know like I know that all of this is coming from Allah um, and I know that anything that I'm doing in this world has to be for the hereafter and I think about that a lot as well in terms of like well, what does it mean for us to realize that this world is not, this is not the end, right? And how do we actually work for a world that is more just in big and small ways, that is actually going to care for people, even as we know that we might not see that in our lifetime? What does it mean to connect to a spirituality that allows you to do that, you know? That's where I'm, where I'm at with it right now. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Small Talk. You can find more episodes of Small Talk over on the Amalia podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback, so hit us up at contribute at amalia.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our production, head on over to amalia.com support. You can also find us on Instagram at amalia underscore com and on Twitter at amalia underscore tweets. Music by Ryan Little, who you can find on SoundCloud, Apple Music and Spotify. A huge thank you to Dr. Zizat Johnson for joining us on this episode of Small Talk. Like, share and subscribe and we'll see you on the next one. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.